Ave Maria Mutual Funds, seeking the moral high ground for 20 years. Pro-life, pro-family, and Catholic values have guided us to the top. The Brown Scapular is a special Catholic devotional, so why settle for a flimsy, irritating one that breaks? At scapulars.com, they use super strong American paracord because your scapular should be as strong as your devotion. They also use the finest Australian merino wool that feels like a warm hug from your heavenly mother. You'll also find handmade rosaries with their distinctive deliverance cross and Italian-made saint medals, keychains, and jewelry. Get yourself one of the most durable, comfortable scapulars in the world. Go to scapulars.com today. Hello, and welcome back to A Reason for Hope. I'm your host, Mario Costabile, and I am absolutely thrilled that you're listening to us today. Follow us and, and share the link to this podcast to anyone that might be interested in checking out what we do. It's available on all podcast platforms. Also, please, if, if you consider being part of our family and prayerfully considering donating to what we do and supporting our work, you can easily do that by going to Array of Hope. Org. That's A-R-R-A-Y of hope.org. We are a 501c3 non-for-profit organization, so all donations are tax deductible. Our guest today is Newt Gindrich. Uh, that's kind of cool. I mean, he's kind of a big guest, and I'm excited to share our interview with him. Newt studied modern European history at Tulane University. He got his master's in 1968 and his doctorate in 1971. He taught at West Georgia College from 1970 to 1978, and in 1978, he won a seat in the U.S. Congress from a district outside of Atlanta. Years later, he served as the 50th Speaker of the United States House of Representatives from 1995 to 1999. He also ran for the presidency of the United States in 2012. He is now an author and a filmmaker. Here is Newt Gingrich. I know you were born a Southern Baptist and you had a conversion to Catholicism in 2009, right? Is that right? That's right. I know that, um, you know, that conversion uh, took some time and your wife was really instrumental in that as well. Uh, do you want to share a little bit about, I guess, your background growing up as a young, uh, young boy, as a Southern Baptist, and then your introduction to Catholicism? Well, I'd, I'd grown up in the Army. My dad was a career soldier. And so you tended to be whatever the local chaplain was. I think I was at one point an acolyte for a Presbyterian chaplain, for example. <laughs> um, and uh, I was a Baptist, and then I married Callista, who was a, a cradle Catholic and who had grown up a very devout in a small town in Wisconsin, and uh, had ended up singing in the choir of the Basilica of the National Shrine. So I would go— uh, out with her for rehearsals, and I would go on Sundays to the Basilica, which is a magnificent place and has an amazing music program. Oh, yeah. And we, I went with the choir to um, to Rome, where they were doing some recordings. And while the choir was rehearsing and recording, I would hang out with Monsignor Rossi, who's the rector of the Basilica. And we would talk about the role of religion and what, what was happening to our civilization 
and uh, the central role of the Catholic Church in uh, protecting and and uh, defending that, that civilization. And so that had sort of got me thinking a lot. And then when uh, Pope Benedict came to visit the United States, uh, he had a gathering of all the bishops at the Basilica and uh, for Vespers, which my wife participated in as part of the choir. And we, uh, those of us who were spouses, were allowed to uh, sit upstairs in the main church. And when Pope Benedict came in, he came in through the main church, and he had such a look of joy in his eyes that it made me think, you know, I really want to be part of that. And so that night at dinner at the rectory with uh, Monsignor Rossi, I said, I really want to convert. I'm, I'm now convinced. So I spent a year studying with Monsignor Rossi. Oh, nice. Uh, and then Cardinal Whirl received me into the church. And uh, it's been an amazing journey ever since. And, of course, my wife went on to uh, become the, the ambassador of the Vatican. And I'm uh, talking to you. Uh, uh, this week we will uh, go back to Rome for the seventh time seventh year in a row of uh, having a Christmas Eve Mass at St. Peter's. So I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that we're pretty committed. I had read, uh, I guess Pope Benedict came uh, 2008, uh, and then you were introduced to his book, right? The Jesus, uh, yes. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, yeah. uh, I know that you're a scholar and you're a thinker, and, and, and that's a pretty heavy book. I, I had my own sort of, I didn't have a conversion, but I had a reversion, uh, and that was one of the first books I read uh, trying to understand the teachings of the church and really trying to discover who Jesus is. Uh, so I know that was an, a pivotal book for you, right? I mean, you'd read that book. Well, and it, Pope Benedict uh, was one of the greatest theologians of his generation and uh, a remarkably studied man. And he, uh, you're right, he tended not to write in simple ways. So you have to, part of it, I think, being German. So you have to actually work your way through it. But it's it's an exhilarating, if, if you're interested in the intellectual life of the mind, then Benedict is a remarkable figure. Pretty, and you're right, it was a very, very heavy book. It, I had to really read that slowly and really try to comprehend paragraph by paragraph. Well, there, there's, there are some books that are designed to be read one paragraph at a time. You read it and you have to stop, you have to think about it, lock it down and then go to the next one. We were very fortunate when Callisto was the ambassador he had retired, uh, but we had an opportunity to visit with him, and it turned out that uh, they both uh, studied piano. And so they had this whole conversation about music that uh, I would not have imagined uh, ever having with a, a former pope. I know that when you were um, when you were going to the Basilica and, and sitting there and listening to your wife sing and whatnot, uh, I know that something that drew you in, I'd read that the Eucharist had a profound uh, impact on you, just understanding the real presence of Jesus. Can you share a little bit of that, what that was like well, for the I first think, time? I think it was the, the, the understanding that in the Protestant tradition, the uh, Eucharist represents the representation of Jesus, but in the Catholic tradition, it is the representation of the actual body. And that makes it a very different communal experience and a, a very uh, much more profound relationship uh, with God inherent in the process and explains why for Catholics uh, having communion is so extraordinarily important. When you left uh, your Baptist, uh, 
I guess you really, was there anybody in your family that was disappointed or upset at you or was there any kind of conflict with your family regarding no, there, that? No, there was no conflict. I think there was a sense of uh, understanding that, that, you know, I had been, I had been evolving and they were pretty used to my being my own person anyway. That's awesome. And you've been a Catholic ever since. <laughs> yes. Well, we're, uh, we're, I'm talking to you, and this week we leave for Rome. Uh, happy for you. That's exciting. Um, so tell me a little bit about your political career. Why did you end up going into politics uh, early on in your career? Uh, my dad was a career soldier. I was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, we had uh, He'd been in the Korean War. He'd been briefly in World War II, uh, and then he was in the Korean War. And uh, when he came back, we went to Fort Riley, Kansas for three years uh, when I was a kid. And then we went to Orléans, France, in Stuttgart, Germany. While we were in Orléans, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we uh, visited a friend of his who had been uh, captured by the Japanese in the Philippines, served on the Bataan Death March, and spent three and a half years in a Japanese prison camp. And he had now been given an assignment by the army because his health had been broken in the prison camp. So he basically had a job as a captain being billeted at Verdun, but not doing very much. Uh, <clears throat> so we went to visit him. Verdun is the largest battlefield in the Western Front of World War I. About um, 600,000 French and German soldiers died in a nine-month period. And they built huge amounts of railroads and concrete and bunkers and uh, storage facilities. Uh, I mean, an amazing amount of money on both sides, an amazing number of lives on both sides went into Verdun. They have a building called the Ossuary, which has the bones of the 100,000 people who were blown apart by artillery and lay in the fields rotting and couldn't be identified. And so you can, uh, you can go to the, the, to the Ossuary. In fact, a few years back, I took Galiston. We went and toured the battlefield again. It was as formidable as I thought it was at the time. Um so we were spending three days touring this extraordinary battlefield and three nights listening to my father's friend talk about the cost of uh, defeat. And uh, we left there, went back to Orléans, uh, and uh, we're in Orléans when the French paratroopers came back from Algeria and killed the French Fourth Republic, brought uh, General de Gaulle back from his home at Colombe-les-Douze-Églises, and created the Fifth Republic. Uh, then we, shortly after that, we were transferred to Stuttgart, which was the Seventh Army headquarters. And the week we arrived in Stuttgart was the first Berlin crisis and was uh, a war in Lebanon where the U.S. Army uh, went in to uh, sustain the government and we had tactical nuclear weapons offshore. All of that came together in my head to say, you know, this stuff's all real, countries can die, and the quality of your leadership uh, is really central to whether or not you're going to survive. And I decided in August of 1958 that uh, I was 15 years old, uh, that I would basically have three jobs. One, what do we have to do to survive? Two, how do we explain it to the American people so that they will give us um, permission to do it? And three, when we have permission, how do you actually implement it so it works? And I would say that uh, from August of 58 on, that's all I've done with my career. So it's been about 65 years. Wow. 
So you really, that planted a seed of really service. You, you really wanted to right. serve your country and, and, and really trying to make a difference. Uh, my earliest recollection of you uh, is obviously Speaker of the House in the 90s. You were Speaker of the House from 95 to 98, right? And Bill Clinton was the president. Uh, uh, when I was thinking about that today, uh, I couldn't, that's almost 30 years ago. I mean, you know, you were a, a younger man then, and, and uh, it's a long time ago. And uh, do you have any, like, f recollection of that period regarding what were really moments that were like, yeah, we did it, or moments that you were disappointed about, or can you share? Joe Gaylord, who was my partner in trying to get this done, uh, and I spent 16 years growing a majority. And when we won in 1994, it was the first House Republican majority in uh, 40 years. When we got reelected in 96, it was the first reelected House Republican majority since 1928. Wow. I didn't uh, know that. We wrote a book on it called March to the Majority, which outlines all the things we had to do to, ch to basically change history. And that's what we were doing. Um, when we won, uh, we negotiated with Clinton. And because we had won so decisively, we had the moral advantage. And we got welfare reform, the biggest capital gains tax cut in history. We balanced the budget for four straight years for the only time in your lifetime. So it was a, a very intense, I think, very effective period. But we couldn't change the culture of our party. We couldn't teach them how to be a team. Uh, same problem that Thatcher had and that Reagan had. Uh, and so once I left, they, they forgot the step. You know, what we were doing was basically Reaganism. Well, I, we stood on Reagan's shoulders. And I first started studying Reagan in 1965. I first worked with him in 1974. I helped in the 80 campaign as a congressman. I worked with him for eight years. So <clears throat> I was carrying the principles and the patterns that had worked for Reagan into the Congressional Republican Party. And I, and I was doing it consciously. I mean, I understood that these were principles. It was like being a cookbook. Um, when I left, uh, people went but reverted to the norm, which is very short-sighted, very tactical, still true today. Uh, and I think, you know, I think Speaker McCarthy tried to break out of it and got fired as a result because uh, th there's a, a self-destructive wing of the party which would rather commit suicide than be successful. I mean, you, your, your career has been uh, amazing. You, you, you met and worked with so many people. Is there anyone that strikes out to you that was uh, really inspirational, transformative in, in working with them, and, and you realize at that moment that this is, this is a very special person? Well, I mean, there, there were two people who I never met, but who had a huge impact. One was Washington, about whom I've written uh, three novels. And the other was Lincoln, about whom I've written uh, four novels. Um, and I studied both of them very intensely. Uh, and then I would say about and people, uh, it, it's hard to overstate how really good Reagan was. And when you had the period of Reagan and Prime Minister Thatcher of Britain and Pope John Paul II, you had three leaders who were astonishing, saw each other as a team. Uh, when Reagan and the Pope met, they had both been shot. Uh, they were both actors. Uh, the Pope had been an, an actor before he became a priest. Um, they were both dedicated anti-communists, and they really forged an alliance along with Thatcher that ultimately brought down the Soviet Union. A, if you think about it, it's one of the great historic feats to take an enormously powerful country and get it to change without a major war. 
it seems like um, times have really changed. Have you have you noticed the when you were involved, the Speaker of the House, and politics then very different than what it is today? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's different in some ways and the same in others. I mean, you, you can study Julius Caesar or you can study um, British politics in the 18th century. I mean, in the end, politics is really about the leadership of people. Uh, it occurs in cultural forms and cultural patterns. And different, different countries, different civilizations have different patterns. Um, I, I was probably helped a great deal by becoming a historian because it led me, gave me the chance and the, and the excuse to immerse myself in a lot of uh, other places and trying to understand the lessons of, of how people exercise power and what people do with it. Uh, one of the biggest changes is the rise of the Internet because it allows people who are extremists in both parties to become important to a niche group of followers who send the money. So you, you can't have an effective discipline because they can actually do fine by being on TV and then raising money. And they, they each become their own little kingdom, if you will. Uh, and that, I think, has made the Congress a little harder to lead than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. Ave Maria Mutual Funds is an industry leader in morally responsible investing. Launched in 2001, their six funds adhere to strong pro-life and pro-family values. Match your investments to your moral beliefs. Call Ave Maria Mutual Funds today. Toll free 1-866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. The advisor invests in securities only if they meet the fund's investment and religious requirements, and as such, the return may be lower or higher than if the advisor made decisions based solely on investment considerations. The fund's method of security selection may or may not be successful, and the fund may underperform or outperform the stock market as a whole. All mutual funds are subject to market risk, including possible loss of principal. For a prospectus, which includes objectives, risks, fees, charges, expenses, and other information that should be read and considered carefully before investing, call 1-866-AVE-MARIA. That's 1-866-283-6274 or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. So if you're wondering how you can help this ministry, rating and reviewing this podcast is the best way to help others hear it, as well as sharing it with your friends and your family. So join us in this mission by rating, reviewing, or sharing this episode with someone you think needs to hear it. And we want to thank you for your continued support of A Reason for Hope podcast. So uh, during your conversion years, I know that you were influenced by several books, one of which was George Weigel's The Cube and the Cathedral, which is about the crisis of secularism in Europe, and his book about the final revolution. Uh, and this is the role about Christianity in freeing Eastern Europe from atheistic dictatorship. So what do you think about that in today's world? It seems that he was onto something. Sure. Look, I think, I think everybody who is uh, sustained by Western civilization is under siege. Uh, one wing of the siege is Islamic radicalism, and the other wing is a uh, anti-religious, secular dictatorship uh, that emphasizes decadence and uh, self-fulfillment and hedonism. Uh, and um, between the two of them, I think this is a genuine fight for the survival of uh, civilization. So do you think there's a resurgence of Marxist ideology today? Well, on, only in a very broad sense, not in the Leninist communist sense. But the, 
the degree to which um, <clears throat> there's an underlying belief that you can't have objective standards uh, is just astonishing. And you see it right now in the fight over the survival of Israel. I mean, uh, there's a poll that just came out today uh, that uh, a majority of people under 25 think that Israel should disappear and that Hamas should inherit uh, the territory. Now, that is such an extraordinary swing from what everybody over 25 believes. That You have to really wonder how much of it's a function of an education system which is anti-Semitic and anti-American. Can, can you elaborate a little more on that? Sure. You've had, you've had two or three generations now of teachers who teach things that are lies, but who get promoted and get tenure because they, they believe the lies. Uh, and so uh, you have, I think, a totally distorted sense of how the world works. I, I tell people that one of the great problems of modern liberalism is that they saw The Lion King and thought it was a documentary. <laughs> and so they think that lions and zebras sing and dance together. And when we try to convince them that lions actually eat zebras, they tell us, no, no, that can't be true. Didn't you ever see the movie? Uh, and so you end up with, you know, I mean, a, a culture which tolerates fentanyl is a culture committing suicide. A, a culture which tolerates uh, children being taught that, that beheading babies is okay if there's a good cause is a, is a culture that's committing suicide. Uh, if you look, for example, at the attacks on Santa Claus, Literally attacks, people getting beaten up for wearing a Santa Claus costume. Uh, what you're seeing is a civilization under siege. And at some point, either the civilization will die or it will counterattack, reassert itself, uh, and uh, impose change. Do you feel that our country is uh, pushing, let's say, the belief of a god or just the ideology that God doesn't exist? I mean, it, it's. Oh, sure. It, look, if, if you were to look at. Um, the, the, for example, the grants that the Biden administration is making, or if you were to look at the belief system of the dancers that Dr. Jill brought to the White House to do a Christmas dance, uh, they have a full page on, on being anti-white, for example. Um, you just go down the list, and, and uh, there's no question in my mind that there is an active effort by large elements of the bureaucracy and an active element by the professors that we pay for with tax money uh, to undermine and destroy American civilization as it has existed now for uh, over 250 years. What is the motivating factor for all this? What, why do you think? I think part of it's self-hatred. Part, part of it is that, that if you believe in uh, certain ideological beliefs, um, you know, you, you, you get taught, for example, that uh, slavery is all about being white, and so you don't pay any attention to uh, Arab slave traders or African slave traders or Native American slave traders. I mean, not, none of that, that's also politically incorrect. You can't imagine trying to actually teach a class on slavery throughout history. Um, you know, the, <clears throat> I mean, to give you an example I've always been fascinated by, there, and I don't know if it's still there or not, uh, but the Miami Science Museum used to have a uh, miniature statue of a skin doctor. And a skin doctor was a person in the Aztec tradition who wore the flayed skins of the sacrifices until they rotted off and would have layers of human skins. 
Now, I suspect that that's so politically incorrect that if you were to try to give a lecture on the role of human sacrifice and skin doctors in Aztec civilization, you would get booed off the Yale or Harvard campus. Because it's, it, it can't be, it's my point about the Lion King, it can't be true. If that were true, then they would be humans too. Then they would have the weaknesses and the problems that all humans have. Well, that can't be right, because we are less than they are. And that's where it starts. You produced the film, actually, with your wife, uh, Nine Days That Changed the World, that really touches upon a lot of the things that we're discussing right now. It was, the, it was about the fall of communism, but it, it deal with the, you know, the, the fight against the culture of Marxism. And uh, uh, you want to share a little? I know it was a while ago. I think it was 2010 you released that film? Yeah. What, what happened was we were making them. We, we've made uh, nine documentaries so far and are just now filming <clears throat> a series called Burnt Joy Journey to America, which is about legal immigrants who come here and make America a better place. Because uh, we want to balance off anti-illegal immigration with, with pro-legal immigration. Um, and uh, so we were doing a film about Ronald Reagan. And part of what we wanted to shoot was the impact he had on communism. So we ended up uh, going to Gdansk and interviewing Lech Walesa. Uh, who had been the leader of the Solidarity Movement in undermining the um, Polish communist dictatorship. And then we went down and we saw Vaclav Havel, who had been uh, the spokesperson for freedom in uh, in that what was then Czechoslovakia, now the Czech Republic. And in both places, they said, you know, the really decisive moment was before Reagan was elected. It was John Paul II coming back to Poland. Now, Callista's half Polish, as well as devout, uh, devoutly Catholic. So, uh, by the time Havel got done, I, I turned and I said, I, I guess this means we're making a movie. And so we decided we'd make a movie about Pope John Paul II. Um, and um, we went to uh, Rome, to Krakow, back to Gdansk. Um, and it's I think it's an amazing movie. Um, the uh, Cardinal Dolan, for example, uses it in his uh, catechism classes. I just saw a young seminarian whose uh, seminary had watched it uh, just recently. And uh, all of our films uh, can, are, are, uh, are available online so people can, can uh, watch them. And uh, that's probably the one I'm proudest of because it, what happened was Vince Haley, who was our, our key researcher and advisor, had found out that the Polish Catholic Church distrusted the Soviet media, and so they'd given out uh, cameras and had lots of people who had these small handheld cameras, and they had hundreds and hundreds of hours of film that nobody had ever seen before of John Paul II in Poland. And so uh, we actually had made Vince stay in Poland to negotiate to get the rights to the film. And as you can imagine, the Polish Catholic authorities distrusted lawyers in general. Uh, their experience of the Soviet lawyers had been pretty bad. Uh, and they kept saying, now what, why are we going to allow this American to have this? And Vince was supposed to get married, and we said, you can't come back till you get the film. Uh, and so he stayed there an extra couple of weeks, got the permission. And when you see the movie, you're literally seeing footage shot by local Polish Catholics of the Pope. Uh, it's, it's amazingly powerful footage. You're hearing the Pope talk. Uh, he was an extraordinary orator. 
And uh, that very first day, he is in uh, what was then called uh, Victory Square. I think it's now called Pilsudski Square, but it was the Soviet term. Uh, he's in Victory Square in Warsaw with three million people. And and he talks about uh, God shining on the face of Poland. And uh, there's this great moment where somebody says to us on, in, the, in the film, this was a real interview, um, that they looked around and they suddenly realized there were a lot more of them than there were of the secret police. So why were they supposed to be afraid of the secret police? Yeah, I I, just, I rented it last night and I watched it. Oh. And uh, was it on Amazon? I can't remember where I rented it. And uh, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's really like a history lesson. So much stuff is packed in this film. And uh, now it makes sense when you're describing the, it's sort of like a lot of black and white footage, right? right? That's sort of like uh, you could that's, see. That's, the, that's shot by local Catholics. Yeah, it's so cool. It's so cool. Um, I don't know if I asked you this. Did you ever meet uh, St. John Paul? I met him twice, once as speaker. And I, w I was there as a very junior congressman in 79 when he came to the White House to see Jimmy Carter. Did you get a, a little bit of a chance to engage with him a little bit? or? Well, I, I, I got to chat with him twice when I was a congressman. And then Callista, we went over with the choir, and they were supposed to meet with him, but he was in the hospital. So they stood outside the hospital singing. Wow. At his window. And it was, it was very touching. And uh, there was a Polish choir also there. And I mean, it, it was very, very meaningful and very humbling. I mean, that's a man that had amazing gifts. Uh, he, yes. He's an orator, like you had said, an actor, a communicator. Well, and of course, Weigel wrote a brilliant biography of him. So any, anybody who's listening to us who wants to, if you go get George Weigel's biography, you'll, you'll begin to realize how truly extraordinary John Paul II was. Yeah. G give us your insight for, uh, I mean, we got, uh, you know, 2024 is going to be election year. Uh, talk about things being very de divisive in our own country. Where's the hope? How do you see this next year unfolding politically? Well, I, I just saw polling numbers this morning that Trump is now at, I think, 69% among Republicans. Um, and Karl Rove, who's not particularly for Trump, uh, was on TV saying, look, nobody who's at 69% has ever failed to win the nomination. Um, so I think Trump will be the Republican nominee. I think at the rate things are going now, he'll probably be the next president. Um, and I think that will represent uh, an enormous challenge to the old order. Uh, I think the degree to which they are terrified of Trump, and I think correctly so. I think Trump represents real change, a real return to basic American values, and a willingness to take on both the universities, the news media, and the bureaucracy. And I think those folks are panic-stricken for good reason. Historically, you would know that I, I was speaking to my wife. Has this ever happened where a, a, a president lost the election on his second term and then was reelected on the-, on the uh, Grover Cleveland uh, won in 1880, lost in 1884, won in 1880. I'm sorry, he won in 84, lost in 88, won in 92. Wow. The only time it ever happened historically? The only time it's ever happened. Wow. In fact, I've told Trump he, he ought to put Grover Cleveland's picture up on the wall. <laughs> Is there anything that you'd like to share? I know that you guys are, you mentioned a little about this film that you're working on. Is there anything else that you want well, to share? I would just say to, to people, if, if you're interested, we do a lot of things. Uh, Calista does an article every week. I do three newsletters a week and three podcasts a week. All of them are free. We also write books. 
the most recent one I mentioned was was uh, March to the Majority. And um, if they go to Gingrich 360, they'll see the scale of what we're doing and how many different things we're trying to do. That's awesome. Uh, and we have a very small team, but it works really, really hard. And uh, we're, we're deliberately very broad. We, we try to impact the culture and impact politics and be helpful to the Republicans uh, in trying to figure out strategies that bring together the maximum number of people. I think, uh, I personally believe, as, as Reagan did, you want to try to get 60 or 70 percent on your side so you have a, a working majority that can actually get something done. And that's what we focus on. Is there retirement ever in your future? I know that you you just hit 80, right? Well, not, not if my health holds up. I mean, I, I love doing what I do. It's, I think it's my vocation. And um, I'm really happy doing it. And I, I think I'd be, I would be bored to death and I would probably get sick very quickly if I wasn't doing what I'm doing. Because I, the, the, I believe, and I, you know, talked to a number of people who have similar patterns that, you know, when you stay active and you stay busy and you're doing things you love, you generate a much greater healthy system that can fight off disease. Uh, when you give all that up, you, as you start to relax, you also start to get sick. Uh, so I have I have no interest in uh, sort of retiring my way into uh, being sick. You feel good? So far. Yeah, you look good. Uh, anything else you want to share? Remember that uh, <clears throat> we have been challenged many times and we've bounced back at many times. And uh, I think in the long run, people prefer freedom to dictatorship. And they prefer the opportunity to seek salvation over being oppressed by atheism. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was an honor speaking with you and sharing with you uh, your life and your hope and your goals. I'm honored to be with you. Amen. Thank you. So I am so glad that you joined us today for this podcast. I want to remind you to please share this podcast with as many people as possible. The more people hear it, the more people our Lord can heal and save. Stay connected to us by your favorite social media platform at R. 4H Podcast. That is the letter R, the number four, and the letter H Podcast. Check us out on our YouTube page where you can see the interviews on video. Uh, and it gives you an opportunity to see what we look like. And remember, in a world that seems to be dark, Christ is the light. There's always a reason for hope. This is Mario Costabile. Until next week, peace. <laughs>